So the reading this morning is uh, Romans 12, 1 to 2. If you want to look in the church Bibles, it's on page 1149. 1149. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is the word of the Lord. Peter. It's really, sorry, it's really um, crackly today. Hopefully. Let's pray together. There we go. That's all right. Um, could you, could, could, could someone just go grab the, the handheld? Cause, uh, and we'll try that. Thank you. Um, let's, let's pray and we'll. Uh, I don't know. Lord, John Wesley wanted to be a, a, a man of one book, and I pray that we'll be a people of one book. A people who, if you're to prick us, uh, would bleed the Bible. A people for whom the, the cross alone is our theology, the measure of all we are and all we do. Lord, we want to be people whose attitudes, whose words, whose actions stem from faith, are obedient to your commands and aim for your glory. And so, Lord, if at present we're living any part of our lives untouched by your gospel, we pray that you would convert us. We pray that you'd take our hearts captive to your word. We pray that you'd renew our lives and our minds. May your word be in our minds and on our lips. Let your word transform our thinking and reform our living. And so, Lord, make us attentive students, devoted servants, and enamored lovered, lovers of your word. For we ask it in the name of our crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Super, thank you. Right, hopefully this will uh, work a little bit better. Uh, I like to move around, so that's that's why I'm not as keen there. Anyway, so our our aim as a as a church is to be and to make disciples who love Jesus as their greatest treasure learn Jesus as their way of life, and live Jesus for the renewal of the world. But if we're going to do that, then we're going to need to learn to think 
biblically. And thinking biblically doesn't just mean knowing how to throw out a couple of out-of-context Bible verses to support whatever argument we're trying to make. Rather, it means being a people whose imaginations are saturated by Scripture. People who see the whole of life through the lens of the gospel. People who know that every aspect of their lives, from the moment that they wake up to the moment that they lie down at night, is the arena of their apprenticeship to Jesus and their worship of God. Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. So what's Paul saying in these famous verses? He's saying three things, I think. First, he's saying that the Christian life must be built on something, namely the mercy of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Second, he's saying that for the Christian, all of life is to be worship, not just a a bit of time on a Sunday morning, the whole of life lived as a living sacrifice to God. And third, he's saying that the way we're enabled to live this kind of all of life as worship Christian life is through having our minds renewed by the gospel. And so that's my threefold aim in this message, to show you, A, the foundation of the Christian life, B, the goal of the Christian life, and C, that thinking biblically is the how-to of the Christian life. So we'll start, start at the beginning. When I was studying uh, theology at university, my teachers drilled into me that the word therefore is there for a reason. Therefore, when we see the word therefore at the start of Romans 12, it's building on something that's gone before. That's what the word therefore means. I mean, think about how we use it other times. Uh, I've been feeling sick, therefore I went to the doctor. Now, what that word means at the start of Romans 12 is that what Paul is about to say isn't coming out of thin air. Rather, it's built on what he's been saying for the last 11 chapters. What he's saying is the life I'm calling you to live in Romans 12 to 16 is built on something. It has roots. There's a whole worldview that's wrapped up in that one little word, therefore. The Christian life is a life that's built on something. All our thinking, all our feeling, all our speaking, all our doing should have a solid foundation. For the next five chapters of the book of Romans, Paul is going to call us to live distinctively in the world as Christians. So he's going to tell us things like uh, to practice hospitality, to bless those who persecute us, uh, to uh, not to get our own back on those who hurt us, but to leave room for God's justice. 
He's going to tell us to owe nothing to anyone but the outstanding debt of love. He's going to tell us not just to think about ourselves in what we do, but to consider the impact of our actions on others, particularly those of weaker faith. Now, Paul isn't making this kind of stuff up on the hoof. He's saying that all of this flows from the previous 11 chapters that he's been talking about so far. In this one word, therefore, Paul is moving from theology to ethics, from theory to practice, from the sublime truths of God, Christ, and salvation to the nitty-gritty of our ordinary, everyday lives, from exposition to exhortation, from indicative to imperative, from doctrine to duty, from what is to be believed to what is to be lived, from what God has done to how we're to respond. That's what he's doing. And what is the foundation upon which all Christian living is to be built? The mercy of God. That's what Romans 1 to 11 is all about. If you want something to do, go home this afternoon, read Romans 1 to 11. Uh, Great read. Paul is saying we hate evil because of God's mercy. Uh, We weep with those who weep because of God's mercy. Uh, We associate with the lowly because of God's mercy. We practice hospitality because of God's mercy. Are you following? The truly Christian life is a life built on the mercy of God. But what does Paul mean when he talks about the mercy of God? Well, God's mercy is a kind of shorthand for the gospel that Paul has been explaining in the previous 11 chapters. Namely, that we're made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. God's mercy is his undeserved kindness to guilty and helpless sinners revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you could say it's epitomized by those famous words of Romans 5.8. I'm sure many of you here know them, so you can finish it for me. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. God's mercy is his willingness in Christ to forgive the guilty by helping those who are powerless to help themselves. And so do you see what this means? The foundation of the Christian life is a heartfelt gratitude for all that God is for us and has done for us in Jesus. We don't obey God in order to be accepted. That's religion. That's not the gospel. We obey God because we've already been accepted in Christ. The Christian lifestyle isn't something that we adopt because we think it will give us a a sense of moral superiority. It's not something we adopt because we think that we can somehow put God in our debt. If we rack up enough good deeds, then we can ask for that motorbike that we've wanted It's not how it works. Rather, the Christian lifestyle is the response of a grateful heart. Religion says, I I obey God in order to get things from God. 
But the gospel comes along and says, I obey God because I want God. Because I've already got everything from God. Because I want to live in such a way that pleases God. Do you see the difference in the motivations? But God's grace is not cheap. God's grace is not laxity. God doesn't look down from heaven and say, "Uh, don't worry about your sin, it's not a big deal. Come on in. Not a big deal. The only way God knew how to get rid of our sin was by coming among us himself in the person of his son Jesus to die for us on a cross. That is a big deal. As long as we think that the mercy of God is just God letting us off the hook because our sin doesn't really matter, we're never going to build our lives on the mercy of God. It will never change us. But the person who feels that they are a guilty and a helpless sinner before God cannot but be changed by the mercy of God. God's mercy will begin to color everything. How could it not? They'll be filled with humble, brokenhearted happiness in God. And so one of the main reasons that believers gather together like we're doing now week by week is to remember that we're part of a story. The story of God's mercy. And that's why we celebrate communion together too. It's not just some weird church ritual. It's a physical, visible, edible reminder that we are the people of God because of the mercy of God. We're God's people because Jesus' body was broken for us. We're God's people because Jesus' blood was spilt for us. And so if you're a born-again believer, that's your story. The bread and the wine that we share at the Lord's table is a way of saying, remember that your life is built upon something. This is what your life is built upon. So let me ask you, what is your life built upon? Can you say from the heart that it's built upon the mercy of God? Is the mercy of God the spring from which all of your thinking and your speaking and your doing flows? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. What does Paul urge us to do? To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your true and proper worship. So the appropriate response to God's mercy is to offer our whole selves to God in worship. I love how Eugene Peterson translates these words. He says, take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. So do you see the the goal of the Christian life is worship. But worship doesn't just mean the songs that we sing in church. That's just one small expression of worship. Worship 
is displaying the supreme value of Jesus in our everyday, ordinary life. It's living our whole lives in such a way that your friends or your neighbors or your other family members can read off of it, God is great. So notice carefully what Paul says. He doesn't say that we're to offer uh, just our, our lips in praise. He doesn't even say that it's just our hearts. No, he says we're to offer our bodies. The whole of our bodily existence. The late, great John Stott writes, this living sacrifice of which Paul speaks is not to be offered in the temple courts or in the church building, but rather in home life and in the marketplace. It is the presentation of our bodies to God. No worship is pleasing to God, which is purely inward, abstract, and mystical. It must express itself in concrete acts of service performed by our bodies. Or as the great Swiss theologian Karl Barth once put it, grace must find expression in life, otherwise it's not grace. Now, I'm not ashamed to admit to you that my favorite film of all time is Cool Runnings, uh, about the, the Jamaican bobsleigh team uh, that entered the 1988 Winter Olympics in Calgary, Canada. Now, uh, at this point in the film, the, the, uh, the team has qualified for the Winter Olympics, uh, and they've just gone, had their first go down the slopes in the, in the main Olympics. Uh, and there's a scene where they're picking apart what went wrong. It was a pretty disastrous first run. And uh, their captain, Derice, uh, is just obsessed with the Swiss. He looks up to the Swiss as the pinnacle. They are the ones to copy. And so he starts doing everything that the Swiss do. He watches every single move they make. And even as they're pushing off their sled, they're going, Ein, zwei, drei. And his best friend, Sanka, challenges him to consider whether the Swiss way is the best way for them. He says, I'm not going to do the Jamaican accent because I can't. All I'm saying, man is if we walk Jamaican, talk Jamaican, and is Jamaican, then we sure as hell better bobsled Jamaican. Knowing who we are shapes how we do things. And it's the same for us as Christians. If our lives are built on the mercy of God, then we'd better walk as Christians. We'd better talk as Christians. We'd better do our jobs as Christians. We'd better parent our kids as Christians. We'd better play sport as Christians. We'd better be friends as Christians. Wherever we are, whatever we do, we'd better do it as Christians. That is in a way that gives glory to God by showing that Jesus is the supreme treasure of our lives. The Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper said it well, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. If 
God's mercy is the foundation of our existence, then we're not our own, but we belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and Jesus Christ. And so that's another thing that our gathered worship as a church is meant to do. It's meant to remind us who we are, and more importantly, whose we are. It's meant to remind us that we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. There is no such thing as a Sunday Christian. If our Christianity is confined to Sunday alone, we're not Christians. We're, suspo- we're supposed to carry our identity and our values as the people of God out with us into our Monday to Saturday lives. Which begs the question, what would it look like for you to do your job as a nurse or a carer or a teacher or a software engineer as a Christian? What would it look like for you to grandparent your kids as a Christian? What would it look like to play snooker or football with my friends as a Christian? And that takes us on to the third point, which is the how-to of the Christian life. If no part of our lives are our own, if nothing is neutral territory, but it all belongs to God, then how can we know what is a distinctively Christian approach to paying our taxes or doing our jobs or expressing our sexuality or whatever else? Paul tells us precisely how we are to think like Christians, feel like Christians, speak like Christians, and act like Christians in verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. How are we enabled to live the Christian life? As our minds are transformed by the gospel. As we learn to think biblically. As we learn to locate our lives within God's bigger story. So the way that I know what would glorify God and how I do my job is by allowing God's word to get inside me and change me from the inside out. The way I know how to wash the dishes as worship is by soaking myself in Scripture. The way I know how to honor God as I go about my everyday ordinary life is by allowing the biblical story to shape my attitudes to everything, from what I get up to in the bedroom to what I do at my office desk and everything in between. Tom Wright explains, The key to it all is the transforming of the mind. Many Christians in today's world never come to terms with this. They hope they'll be able to live up to something like Christian standards while still thinking the way the rest of the world thinks. It can't be done. David Foster Wallace tells the story of two young fish 
swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? The two young fish swim past and swim on for a bit before eventually one of them turns to the other and says, what the hell is water? The point is, we can be so immersed in the world, we don't even realize it. Eugene Paterson paraphrases verse 2 this way. He says, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. J.B. Phillips uh, puts it like this. He says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your mind from within. You see, God must convert not just our hearts, but our imaginations too. Uh, It's been said that, uh, and apparently it's been proved as well, um, that if you put a frog in a pan of uh, cold water and heat it up very gently on the stove, it won't jump out. But rather it will boil to death. Now, I should just add a disclaimer here. No frogs were hurt in the making of this sermon. But the Apostle Paul is warning the Christians in Rome, don't let that happen to you. It's so easy to take on the attitudes and the mindset and the worldview and the assumptions of the world around us unthinkingly, unquestioningly. Don't do it, Paul says. Think through everything through the lens of the gospel. If we're going to belong to Christ through and through, God's going to have to train us to think like Christians. Uh, and just note this for, the, for, for any linguists out there. There are two verbs that Paul uses, conformed and transformed. Both of them are passive. In other words, they're things that have been done to you. So our minds are being shaped by someone or something. The only question is what or who is forming them. So current scientific research estimates that about 95% of our brain activity is unconscious, i.e. we don't think about it. It's the overflow of our mindsets, our worldview. In other words, 95% of my life is lived on autopilot. I don't think about it first. And that makes sense. Because I'm not consciously thinking I need to speak at this level. I'm not consciously thinking what on earth am I doing with my hands. If we thought everything through consciously before we did it, we'd never get anything done. But here's the thing, we can train ourselves to do things without thinking about them. Anyone here play piano? Does anyone here play piano? Don't be so shy, Jacqueline. Okay, so I'm guessing, Jacqueline, you, you probably don't need to look at all the keys every time you play something. But I'm guessing when you started, you did. For the benefit of the tape, the, uh, the suspect is nodding. 
It's the same when you're, if you're on the computer and the, the uh, you're, when I first started, I had to kind of look at all the keys that I was typing. Now I can touch type, don't need to. Now it's become part of that 95%. Where am I going with this? Well, if you want to become the kind of person who naturally and instinctively rejoice wi rejoices with those who rejoice, who blesses those uh, who persecute you, then you need a new operating system. It can't just be, must bless this idiot, must bless this idiot, must bless this idiot. That isn't going to get you very far. We've got to become the kind of person for whom loving our enemy is second nature. And how does that happen? By having our minds renewed by the gospel. Once you see how much of a jerk you are in God's eyes, in your sin, and how he loved you enough to send Jesus to die for your sins, then you'll see the jerk sat next to you rather differently. The gospel will rewire you. John Stott writes, there is no greater incentive to holy living than a contemplation of the mercies of God. So are we contemplating the mercies of God? Uh, Paul, uh, later on in, in 1 Corinthians 3, 18, uh, says this, and we all with, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now he's saying, very simply, if you want to become more like Jesus, focus your attention on Jesus. He's saying, beholding is becoming. The more you look into the gospel of grace, the more you'll be transformed. And if our looking into the gospel is only superficial, guess what? You're going to be a superficial Christian. Our calling as Christians is to figure out how to think and feel and speak and act in the world in a way that's consistent with the story of being a people who belong to a crucified, risen, and exalted Savior. And that's another reason why our gathering together for worship is so important, because it reminds us of our story. There are lots of stories out there, but our role as Christians is to inhabit God's story. So one story that we hear out there a lot, and it's never articulated this way, but it's there, is that failing makes you a failure. Have you heard that story at all, anyways? Well, God's story is about Jesus rescuing the world from sin through the epic failure of a death on the cross. Another story we hear all the time is that we must be true to ourselves and do whatever makes us happy. But God's story is that there is no us apart from God. And true happiness is happiness in Him, in complete obedience to His good and perfect and pleasing will for us. We're also told that there's no such thing as a free lunch. Nothing in life is free. But guess what? God's story is the one of unmerited love and grace towards undeserving sinners. What would it look like if that really got inside of us? And we started to think through the lens of grace 
rather than earning. We have a better story. And that's what the light party tomorrow evening is all about. We have a better story than the darkness of Halloween. It's an alternative to what the world offers. Because God's story is that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So we don't celebrate the darkness, we celebrate the light. We have a better story to tell. We have a better story to tell the world than be who you are. No one has a right to tell you how to live. We live by the subversive truth that our lives aren't our own, that we're children of a loving Heavenly Father, that we're not here by cosmic accident, that the creator of the universe has a design for our lives that is infinitely better than anything we could carve out for ourselves. But how often do we do an Esau and sell our Christian birthright for the world's pottage? Shame on us when we do that. We have a better story to tell. And so my prayer for us as a church and for each of you as as individuals is that we learn to think from within the biblical story. That we will live lives that are narrated by God, not by the culture around us. That if our lives are indeed built upon the foundation of God's mercy, that we can't think and speak and feel and act the same way that everybody else does who don't know God's mercy. And so our calling is to live in the world as Christians. As living, breathing reminders to the world that it belongs to God. And we can only do that by allowing the gospel to renew our minds. To baptize our imaginations. To convert our consciousness to train our desires, to rewire our neural pathways. In short, by immersing ourselves in this strange new world of the Bible until it becomes our home. So let's pray together. All to Jesus. I surrender all to thee I freely give Lord Jesus would you pray uh, we we do pray that you'd make these more than just words that we sing would you make them into the bright burning reality of our lives would you make us people whose lives are built on the great therefore of the father's mercy people whose hearts and minds have been so grasped by the gospel of grace that anything less than complete and total surrender would be completely irrational. Would you make us more and more like you through the renewing of our minds? Take every thought, every attitude, every word, every action, obedient and captive to you. Lord, we pray 
that you'd make us cross-shaped, whole-life worshippers, not just here on a Sunday, but in the office as we're replying to emails, at home as we're changing dirty nappies, as we're playing sport with our friends. Whatever it is we might be doing, body and soul and life and death, we belong to you. Help us to think like that and help us to live like that. Amen. So in a moment, we're, we're going we're gonna to sing together. Uh, and as ever, I just want to give people an opportunity uh, 